0: Hi everyone, this is Catherine O'Connell and welcome to Lawyer On Air. If you are looking for inspirational stories about women in law, then this is the podcast for you. Join me and my lawyer ladies as we enjoy a glass of wine after a hard day at work and talk about the world of women in law. I hope you will enjoy getting to know these amazing women who I am so proud to share a profession with. I'm glad you're here and I hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Episode 2 in Season 3 of Lawyer On Air. I'm the host of the show, Catherine O'Connell. Today I'm joined by Olivia Nomura, who is an associate at Allen & Overy in Tokyo. ANO is one of the first international law firms to have established an office in Tokyo back in 1988. For over 30 years, the ANO Tokyo office has provided comprehensive legal services to a wide range of corporate clients, both domestic and international the Tokyo practice specializes in three major areas corporate and M&A projects energy natural resources and infrastructure and banking and finance Olivia's law practices serving clients in the corporate and M&A team with cross-border deals Olivia has been working for the past seven years as an M&A lawyer in both New Zealand and in Japan she has gained experience across a range of commercial transactions. And in particular, she has been managing multi-jurisdictional M&A deals. Recent work saw her working with a US office on a special purpose acquisition company deal and subsequent NASDAQ listing. And that deal had over 120 stakeholders and the closing took place on Zoom calls over six different time zones. Well, as you have guessed, I'm sure from the mention of New Zealand there, Olivia and I do indeed both hail from the beautiful country of New Zealand. Olivia was born and raised in Auckland and she tells me that she developed an interest in Japan early on, studying Japanese language at the age of 12. When Olivia was just 16 years old, she came to Japan on a three month Japanese language exchange to Fukuoka Girls High School in Japan then during her early high school years Olivia had a strong sense of justice and that prompted her to pursue a legal career and so it was that in 2006 Olivia actually left high school a year early because she was granted discretionary entrance to the University of Auckland and there she studied her bachelor's degree in law and arts majoring in Japanese and political science Well, while others took off time during the university holidays, Olivia instead got involved in various law-related activities, including interning at a political think tank and assisting with discovery in a litigation case, and even organising a law conference for around 200 university students. And that conference was called Just Law, Minds Wide Open. In July 2011, Olivia moved to Japan to continue her Japanese studies, and like many people have done, she worked as an assistant language teacher teaching English to Japanese junior high school students on the JET program. After three years doing that, and also having attained level two in the Japanese language proficiency test, Olivia then decided it was time to move back to New Zealand and pursue her law career. After completing the legal professional studies course, which we in New Zealand affectionately call profs, Olivia worked as a legal secretary for a few months, while she was searching for a position as a corporate lawyer. In July 2015 she was admitted as a barrister and solicitor of the High Court of New Zealand and landed her first role as a corporate and M&A lawyer at Chapman Trip, which is New Zealand's largest commercial law firm with around 60 partners and 200 legal staff. Well, as I've said before on previous podcasts, once you have Japan in your blood, it is very hard to shrug off, and most people have a yearning to come back here. And Olivia was really no different. She had always hoped to practice law in Japan someday, but she knew she needed at least two years' law experience in her home jurisdiction of New Zealand in order to qualify as a foreign registered lawyer in Japan, or colloquially as we call it here, guy In the end of 2016, Olivia was headhunted to interview for a corporate M&A role at international law firms in Tokyo and she jumped on that opportunity and interviewed at several firms before finally accepting a role as an associate in Baker McKenzie's corporate practice group in Tokyo. In October 2017, having achieved the goal of gaining her two years home jurisdiction experience, Olivia and her husband packed up their lives in New Zealand and moved over to Tokyo. Olivia worked at Baker McKenzie for two and a half years before being headhunted again to work for corporate partners Nick Wall and Tokutaka Ito in Allen and Overy's Tokyo office. Olivia joined ANO in April 2020 and yes, that date is familiar to all of us because it was right at the beginning of that pandemic. So Olivia, like all of us, has worked from home for the majority of her last two years with the firm. Uh, She's also just taken leave to have a child and I hope to hear some more about how Olivia is managing to balance this new stage of her life and work. Well, as I'm sure you can tell from that massive introduction, Olivia is indeed a lawyer extraordinaire and I'm very pleased to bring Olivia Nomura to you today as my guest. Olivia, welcome to the show. Thank you catherine for having me it's a pleasure to be here well we're going to talk today about your career path how you've navigated your early days to qualify to work in japan your career so far in new zealand and japan and how you're balancing your life and work and i'd really love you at times during our conversation to provide any tips and ideas you can for that next generation of associates who are coming up the ranks after you how does that sound that sounds wonderful great well today we are online in fact we're talking on a sunday here today which is uh, in order to make sure that we can get you out of your working week or your time away from the office at the moment while you're doing your maternity leave and so in fact i hope we can catch up again in person soon olivia but if we were meeting up in person where would that be do you have a favorite wine bar or cafe in tokyo that you love to go to and what would be your choice off the menu
1: Sure well I love a good New Zealand sav but I'm also a quiet g and fan so Ooh. if we were meeting in person Catherine um, there's a great craft gin bar called Six S-I-C-X in Nakameguro where I used to live uh, it has a great selection of craft gins from around the world so that's where um, I'd love to,
0: to take you. Oh, I have not been there. And I've heard there's just so much about craft gin at the moment that it's so, so popular. I would love to go with you there. Thank you so much. Let's do it. And I was also trying to recall, Olivia, when we first met, and I'm pretty sure it was when we were at Amazon Japan's offices in Meguro back in April 2018. And now you say you lived in Nakameguro. I'll have to pause there. There is a call coming in. And this call is from the Japanese monitoring office at the government uh, monitoring my position as I've just come back from time in New Zealand and uh, I'm in quarantine in Japan. And so my presence is being recorded another 12 or 11 seconds to go. What do you do? <laughs> I'm not sure if someone watches you talking to them. I am not sure, but they will be interested to hear what I'm saying. It's about time to close off now. That's it. Well, that was interesting to have that experience during our recording, because as I just said, I have come back from uh, New Zealand and the Japanese government are looking after us by checking our presence and making sure we're at home. And I know you had that recently with your uh, parents when they were visiting you. Uh, Recording their presence every day to make sure we are actually at home, abiding by the rules, as you would (laughs) expect lawyers and families of lawyers would do. So uh, going back to where we were, I was remembering that we were at Amazon offices together because it was a Women in Law Japan event, and I had only just set up my law practice. And I think it was a panel of solo practitioners, and Angela Krantz, our first lawyer on air guest, was the moderator. Maybe it was Rika Beppu who introduced you and me. Is that right? I think it might have been, yes, Catherine. Wow, okay. And so a few times after that, I think we've seen each other at law events or online. But with this pandemic, we've not actually seen each other. And so seeing you today when we logged on to Zoom, it was really the first time forever. So it's been so crazy, hasn't it?
1: Oh, it has, Catherine. Um, but hopefully we will be able to get together in the not too
0: distant future. I hope so. Maybe at six Gin And I remember too, as I just said, I've been coming back from New Zealand. So when were you last in New Zealand? I would have
1: been in New Zealand just over two years ago when we went back for Christmas to see oh, my family.
0: Okay. And so you haven't been back for two years. What do you miss? Obviously, apart from your family and friends.
1: I probably miss being able to go for walks mm. out where I used to live uh, in Epsom or at this big mountain in One Tree Hill. I really miss that.
0: Yeah, I can tell that. And it's certainly being able to freely walk around in New Zealand. Omicron obviously is increasing a little bit there uh, right now, but those walks and summer days are ones that we do miss. And I, I hope you can get back to that uh, in this next coming year. So Thanks for sharing that. I wanted to go back then to your early days when you were studying Japanese. But right back before that, can you remember when you were a child what you wanted to be when you grew up? You know That big question that we often get asked. What do you remember about those times, about what you wanted to do in your future?
1: During uh, primary school, I think I recall wanting to be a nurse. But as I got older, I realized that I didn't like blood Catherine. So I ruled (laughs) out that
0: career pretty quickly. (laughs) You're like me. I cannot stand the sight of blood. I would fall over. Yeah. Well, where did that desire then for Japanese study come from? Because you said you thought about it from year, well, age 12. What triggered that?
1: It's hard to say sort of 100%, but we had Japanese homestay students stay with us um, for a number of years from when I was about seven years old. And they used to bring, you know, their omiyage, great, you know, really fun souvenirs. And as a child, I thought that was a lot of fun. But of course, there was that language barrier there to some extent. So I think that really prompted me to learn Japanese so that I could communicate with them as I could see that there was something really interesting and different about the culture that drew me to it.
0: We had homestays as well, but it was after I started studying Japanese. So was there something already there in your family where they had that attraction to Japan or did it just come up through the school as an offering? Studying Japanese itself
1: um, was offered at my intermediate school Uh, so that's when I started studying at 12 years old. I studied that, and I actually also studied German and I studied both those languages right through high school into my first year at university but as you know as I started studying law studying two languages was just a bit much to keep going so I just continued with the Japanese.
0: Oh right and then so that's what led you to then when you were 16 come to Japan for that a stint for three months at Fukuoka Girls High School. That's right yes. Oh so what surprised you then about Japan or the language then like different to the textbooks because I know for me when I came to Japan it was certainly a little bit different from what I'd read in textbooks. How about you? Obviously, as you know,
1: being a New Zealander, I think Japan is just so different from New Zealand. It looks different. It smells different. It tastes different. (laughs) Um, And I think for me, that was just really intriguing. And I think I always love a challenge. And I think there was always a challenge in both the culture
0: and the language to want to know more and want to learn more. Right. What do you remember about that sort of three months with the school? Was it What surprised you about Japanese schools or the Japanese students that you met there?
1: What surprised me the most on day one was how many pairs of shoes I needed, Catherine. I think I had at least three or four sort of indoor and outdoor shoes for sports and a different pair to come to school. And I remember being quite overwhelmed and wanting to make sure I got it all right and yeah. not offend anyone.
0: That's right. And then there's the other pair of shoes, right? Going into the bathroom, which is That's another right. story, yes. right? wow okay and so you've really been so immersed in japanese language and i also see from your profile on linkedin that you in 2020 i think it was also invested in more japanese language study but also with an overlay of law because you did a legal translation course at temple university in japan right that's right yes what enticed you to do that additional study with the law as well I've always really
1: enjoyed interpreting for friends and family when they come over to Japan. And I thought it would be a great uh, string to add to my bow as often with meetings and clients in my role, there'll be someone in the room or in our team that doesn't speak Japanese or English. So I thought that that would be a great skill to have. So I started with that translation course and I do plan to do the interpretation course that they run um, at some point in the future.
0: Right. So the translation course is, is written. Is that right? And then the interpretation is correct, is verbal, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, do you think it's really important for lawyers to have Japanese language and understanding to work in Japan? Or is it not necessary? What do you think? Well,
1: personally, I think it is necessary to have some interest in Japanese culture and in the people here, not only to live life here um, and enjoy doing that. And you might know this too, Catherine, that culture is so embedded in the language. And I think knowing the language then just helps communication uh, so much with with clients, both internally and externally. Uh, it makes this life, I think, a whole mo- lot more fun because you just can understand each other. And that's wonderful.
0: It's right, isn't it? And it's even very subtle things such as, you know, if you're on a Zoom call and saying goodbye at the end, you don't just click off immediately right you wait for that usual two or three or four seconds that you would normally do on a phone call before you actually cut the call right which always surprises me because at least zoom has a little bit of timing between ending the call and actually ending it but some of those calls like teams they immediately end and it always feels so rude especially with japanese clients to cut off immediately so knowing even things like that about the custom Uh, is really important, right, when we're on calls, et cetera, right now, because we're online all the time. Mm. I agree. Mm. Yeah. Well, thanks for those insights. It's really interesting to hear that you are positive about having Japanese language. Some of our guests have said uh, it's not necessary, there's no demerits, but certainly I'm aligned with you and knowing that I would not be practicing here if I didn't have language because of that overlay into culture as well. Well, that's really interesting so let's go back then to your study of law because it seems to me you did your law studies you graduated but you didn't go straight to qualify as a barrister and solicitor in new zealand but moved to japan for the jet teaching role is that right that's
1: right yeah i thought it was really important to continue my japanese language studies at the time because i'd already taken two years out to sort of finish off my law degree after the Japanese part of my degree ended and so I didn't want to forget all that I'd learned and so yeah that's what took me to go in the JET program for those three years.
0: Right so why is Japanese then so important to you and that you wanted to do the JET role? With language it's easy
1: to forget if you're not using your language skills Mm. and I spent so much time and energy uh, learning the language that uh, I would hate to have forgotten it And yeah, I suppose maybe there was
0: something that Mm. deep down I always knew that maybe would have worked in in Japan um, one day. Right. Okay. And so consolidating on it then when it's still quite fresh was important, but also was it to get another experience before getting into that uh, mechanism or the cogs of the law firm and, and doing that kind of work? Was there a bit of that overseas experience thing coming in there as well? I don't think so. I
1: never really desired to go on an OE per Mm -hmm. se. I never considered going anywhere else other than Japan. So for me, it was quite intentional choice to do that, to continue my language studies. And I wanted to do that, like I said, firstly, so that I didn't lose those language skills. But I think secondly, so that once I got into law, I think it'd be really easy to sort of stay on that path. Mm -hmm. And it would then be really difficult to go back to Japan to pursue language. So I think that's why I did it around that way. Right.
0: Yeah, well done. I mean, for me too, I did Japanese, then law, but my first real induction one with Japanese was doing tour guiding for a couple of years and really consolidating on it. So I'm really hearing you there on that, that it is important not just to do a a fleeting visit, on the language, but to actually do a deep dive. And I really love how you've done that. And it certainly served you well. So after that three years on your second stint in Japan, you did decide to come back to New Zealand and do your law career and actually qualify as a lawyer. So the motivation then to come back, did it come through while you are in Japan for three years or was it something that, you know, you were being pulled back by people who said it's time for you to come back? Was it really within you that you thought about it, that it was time to come?
1: Yes. I always wanted to pursue law. It was never if, but just sort of when. And I felt that if I'd stayed any longer in Japan, Catherine, that it would have been really difficult to come back to pursue law. So that's what um, drew me to to come back to New Zealand to pursue that at that time.
0: And you'd said in your um, high school years, you had a strong sense of justice. So is there a connection there to returning from Japan to New Zealand to continue that pathway on justice? What's that strong sense of justice coming from?
1: That's a great question, Katie. I'm not sure where that, that comes <laughs> from. I think that just always been innately in me. I've always mm-hmm. had a really strong sense of right and wrong and would always be mm-hmm. picking fights with my younger brother and wanting to, wanting to win. <laughs> so I think that's what initially drew me to law. And I think I always also had an interest, I think, in politics as well as I saw that as sort of a tool to sort of change things and to bring about positive change. That's where the initial desire to study law came from. But I think over time that really developed while I was at university. And I soon realized that it wasn't important just to do something that I felt passionate about, but actually something that I was good at. So I think that desire that initially drew me to the law sort of evolved as it were. And I, through my legal studies, figured out that I actually was better at corporate law Mm. than I was at subjects like family law or international law, uh, which initially I thought I would be more interested in. Mm. Uh, So that was quite interesting.
0: Yeah. (laughs) that. As I mentioned in the beginning, one thing that stuck out for me was you organizing that law conference, the conference, um, just law minds wide open. And I'd never really heard of anyone organizing a conference like that while they were still a student. I'm really curious about that, why you wanted to do that, your motivation. And, and do you think something like that is really important to have on a CV or was it more than just being on your CV? Tell us a bit more about that experience.
1: Sure. It definitely wasn't about being on my CV. It was actually came as an idea from a friend who was a few years older than me, and she'd already been practicing in the law for a few years. And sort of a few of us friends got together, some practicing law, some still at university. And we decided that we wanted to run this conference to introduce to New Zealand law students some different potential career paths. Mm. Um, As often at university, you have the big law firms come in and you sort of do the clerkships. And often that's the only career path presented as sort of being a, an option. Um, so we thought it would be great to run this conference and, and have a few different speakers that have studied law, but then gone on to do uh, different things with their career. That's what led us to, to run the conference. Um, there was about 200 university yeah. students that attended. And yeah, it was a really great experience.
0: So what kinds of people did you have there? Did you have judges or barristers or in-house legal counsel? What kinds of people came along to talk about their different roles?
1: We definitely had a judge from the family court um, come and speak. And that was really interesting. And like you said, we also had an in-house lawyer and we also had a couple of people that had gone off and done completely different careers altogether that hadn't pursued law but may have had sort of a slight legal bent in their roles, Mm. um, but were definitely not in-house legal counsel either so yeah a real range of people
0: and was that conference a one and done or has people continued to do that since you've now departed the university
1: I think it would have been great to be able to continue that um, and to sort of have it as a yearly thing. And we did talk about that when we first um, ran it. But I think since then, the sort of other core members that we ran the conference with have all gone off and done different things. So just as life has happened, we haven't been able to, to run it again.
0: Yeah, well, I guess it's up to everybody else to also have the momentum to do something like that. But I think that's really fantastic. I've not heard of that being done before. So kudos to you for doing that. Thanks. Right and and doing something a little different and I hope that people who hear this will also be inspired to do something like that while they're at university and even beyond university at any time and I think you're right there to share that experience of the fact that there are other careers and I know as you just mentioned the clerkships and things that we had uh, large law firms would come in and, and take recruiting at universities and never really was it apparent to me that there were other careers available in the law. And so I think that's really amazing that you did that, but also I think it's important that others who are listening know that there are many ways to be a lawyer and and to also use law in different ways and not be a lawyer, do other things with it, uh, with a law degree. So that's, that's really amazing. So after you completed the legal professional studies, the profs course, you actually did work as a legal secretary for a while. And I think that's also rather interesting Many may not have decided to do something like that after they'd studied law. Is there something you learnt or experienced from that secretarial role that now actually serves you as a lawyer? Perhaps it's appreciation for the massive role that our support staff have and do for us in law firms. But is there anything else from that, even just a short time that you had as a legal secretary, that makes you sort of think about your role today?
1: The reason I sort of became a legal secretary was because I finished my professional legal studies course at quite an odd time so there it was quite hard to find a law job just sort of midway through the year but this job as the secretary was going and I did make it clear at the interview though that I would like to pursue law as a lawyer at some point so um, yes. <laughs> whether that was going to be at that firm or or elsewhere
0: and that was not Chapman trip right that was no a no this right is a different
1: firm Catherine right
0: yeah yeah and
1: I think I thought I'd be qualified enough for the role as I am a touch typist. I'm really fast at typing. um, And I knew that the job was going to involve doing dictation um, for letters and other legal documents. So I thought, okay, well, I can do that. And I actually really enjoyed doing that part of the job. And I also got to do um, a lot of land conveyancing, which was was interesting because at that point, I hadn't sort of 100% decided that I wanted to do corporate M&A, as I did have an interest in land law as well at university. I thought that could be a direction I went in, but that experience helped me to decide that I didn't want to pursue a a career as a land
0: lawyer, but it was equally interesting. Very Um, useful, right? To decide what not to do as well.
1: Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And I think like you touched on, the overall experience was so fantastic when I did become a lawyer because I knew more what the role of a secretary was and how I could effectively work with them as a team together when I became a lawyer and that experience I found was quite unique and when I joined Chapman Trip because a lot of the other junior lawyers had no idea what a secretary did and didn't really utilize them and it just Mm -hmm. meant that they were then a lot more busy doing all these things that they could actually have got um, assistance with if they learned or knew how to collaborate well with the the secretary.
0: Yeah and collaboration is so important and treating people as equals in the firm as well and as you've just touched upon secretaries do a lot of the work that you'd think a lawyer might do, but they do a significant support role uh, and often know more about those practical areas of the law than what we coming out of uh, law school and just doing profs know. So I think they're really good points that you've touched upon. And after a few months, I think it was July 2015, you said you were admitted to the bar in New Zealand and your first job was at the prestigious Chapman trip. And as I said before, too, they usually recruit at university. So how did you search for that role? And do you remember, what do you remember then about those early days of being a newly qualified lawyer in New Zealand? I
1: researched sort of the top three firms' websites, because often they have jobs posted on that. And I saw that Chapmanship was looking for a legal secretary role, and I think someone else for their corporate service center. Mm. Um, and so I thought, OK, well, I might as well apply for that role and sort of see how it goes so I applied for the role for the corporate center, service center which Catherine is sort of like the printing and Filing and binding um, right. <laughs> sort of role. Um, it's a really entry level role, but I thought, well, if it gets me in the door type thing, then it's it's worth it. So I went for that role, went for the interview, and the interviewer was very kindly kindly said to me that she thought I was a bit overqualified for the role, and she said that there wasn't much mobility really between the service centre and then the legal department, so it wouldn't really help me get a role in the law. Um, right, the legal team.
0: Yeah, And so I had
1: that interview and then I sort of kept working as a secretary. And then a month later, after that interview, I got a phone call saying, hey, we've got a role um, open in our corporate team as a junior solicitor. Would you be interested to interview? And so I said, well, that would be great. So I went for that interview with two of the the corporate partners and I got the
0: role. Wow. So was that from the fact that you had gone in there on that corporate service center inquiry? Yes, it
1: was. It was. They had got my name and that obviously put me down on the list if they needed a corporate lawyer. So
0: how interesting, right? It wasn't wasted. I mean, I would have looked at that and gone legal secretary, nah, corporate service center. No, no, no. I want a legal, legal, legal job. Wow. How interesting. Yeah. You can never really underestimate the possibilities and the ways and means to acquire your first role. So how was it then in those first initial days or months of being uh, a newly qualified lawyer at Chapman Tripp?
1: It was a big learning curve So I don't think university really sets you up for what a law career brings. As a junior lawyer, I initially felt quite frustrated because I think we have this image of what a a lawyer is like, Catherine, Mm. um, and the sort of tasks that we might be doing. But as a junior lawyer, you're often drafting ancillary documents or sort of setting up companies on, you know, the company's law office website and or proofreading documents, and it can seem hard to understand if these tasks are actually taking you towards your goals as a lawyer, or yeah, I have one sort of recollection of this story where I was proofreading an IPO prospectus and reading it out loud with a colleague to check that there was no errors and just thinking why am I doing this like is this really what it means to be a lawyer and I've you know worked so hard for so I think that was my first impression and I remember talking to the partner and he sort of reassured me that no this is taking to you towards your goals and you will learn if you just sort of persevere and hang in there until you can see that bigger picture
0: gosh is that how it did happen then you did persevere and you did get to your goals
1: I did. I did. And I think I saw over time how these tasks that I was being asked to do were really assisting me um, for the next things that I would be tasked with. So for example, you know, proofreading that that document was so important because you know a year later, I ended up dr- helping to draft that document for, for another IPO um, and to be able to know firstly what was meant to be in it um, and to spot things that look odd and need to come out was just so, so important. So I learned that these small things do have a purpose and are really important and will set you up well for the next step. Um, If you can sort of just hang in there until you can kind of, yeah, like I said, see that bigger picture about why you were doing those things.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, we'd love it to be a bit more exciting in those first days or months of uh, starting our career, but I think you've just hit the nail on the head there with it. The connection between that grind work, shall we say, and the actual work that really was important the year after when you were doing the drafting. That makes a lot of sense. And so then there's this big transition again from New Zealand to Japan for your first law role in Japan. I've got a couple of questions here that maybe will help others because I'm sure they're curious to know how you did it. So my first question is, how you went about finding that role in Japan, because I think many people who maybe are in New Zealand who are listening to this or in other countries may think, you know, New Zealand's a long way from Japan, so how does someone go about applying for a role in a a big, reputable firm like Baker McKenzie when you're all the way down in New Zealand? I know you said you were headhunted, but how did they find you on the radar? Had you met people at Baker McKenzie or what actually happened there to get you to that first step? That's my first question.
1: Sure. Uh, no, I hadn't met anyone at Baker McKenzie or any other law firm in Japan. I was literally just headhunted from my LinkedIn page. They saw that I had studied Japanese and also was working at Chapman Trip and corporate M&A and asked if I was interested to interview for the role. And once I started interviewing for that one particular role, um, I decided, okay, well, maybe it's time to explore other firms also in Japan to see if they would be interested in hiring me. Uh, So I had a few interviews with other firms before landing on that that role at Baker McKenzie.
0: Right. And did you know then that you had to get two years' experience in order to work in Japan? Or where did you find that information from? I did. So
1: I haven't mentioned it yet, um, but I actually married a Japanese national. in between coming home from the JET program and starting my career at Chapman trip.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So
1: (laughs) I I always, and so there's that. And then I always knew that I still had this passion for Japan and wanted to combine my Japanese and law interests together if possible sometime in the future. But obviously since I was headhunted, the sort of opportunity just came up a bit earlier than I initially expected, Catherine. So I did know that you needed two years. Right. In your home jurisdiction. Great. Um, in good. order to be qualified as a guy, I've been in Japan, so I always knew that I wanted those two years experience in New Zealand. So um, I suppose that was what I thought was what was in front of me. So I just worked for that, and then after two years, perhaps reassess whether I was to stay in New Zealand with my husband or whether it was
0: time to move back to Japan. Right. So I think that naturally leads to my second question, which is around managing that transition to Japan while you're in New Zealand, because. At the end of 2016, I believe you were headhunted for that role, right? That's right, yes. But you didn't move to Japan for another year, end of 2017.
1: That's right. So part of it was to make sure I got those two years experience. And then part of it, I think, was practical too. Like I actually needed to pack up my life, send all my things to Japan and and make sure that we were good to actually live in Japan. And my husband also had a job that he could come back to because he had quit his job. He was a teacher and had quit that job in order to move to New Zealand. Uh, Mm. So he needed to be set up as well.
0: Sure. And so how did you manage then knowing you were moving to Japan, but also continue to serve your New Zealand clients? I'm imagining the firm knew or were you keeping that sort of vague so that you could make your decision at the end of two years what you wanted to actually do?
1: I was never secretive about my Japanese interest. It was clear I was married to a Japanese national, loved speaking Japanese, lived there for three years, and when I got the offer for the job, I was I was quiet about it until the appropriate time, like anyone is if you've received a new job opportunity. Yes. Um, so I don't think it impacted my role at Chapman Trip in a negative way at all. It was yeah a really positive thing that I was sort of moving on to the, the next step
0: um, for me. More, more so, you invested time differently in your work in New Zealand because you knew in the back of your mind that you were going to be going. And so perhaps it was even a, a more intensive and quality driven approach to the way that you did your work in New Zealand. Yeah, I think
1: so. After talking to people, once I knew that I might want to practice law in Japan, and started so having those conversations was sort of asking, you know, what skills do you need? What's important to gain from that home jurisdiction experience to bring with you? And so, yeah, I think um, I was really intentional about getting as much as experience as I could as a junior lawyer so that I was set up for that next step.
0: Wow. OK, so you were you back in Japan now and you had been in Japan before. You're married to a Japanese national. You know a lot about living in Japan, but how about that experience of being a lawyer in a law firm in Japan, it must have been very different to how you had worked in New Zealand. What do you remember about those early days there again at, at Baker McKenzie? Sure, it was very different. Um,
1: I think if I was going to summarize it, it would be like a baptism of fire, to say the least. <laughs> you know, in New Zealand, even though law professionals were really hardworking um, and sometimes we do work long hours, generally in New Zealand, there's a bit more of a nine to five kind of working style and people tend to switch off more at the end of the day. They have a more of a you know, work-life balance mindset mm. and spend time with their families a lot more, I think, than they do here in Japan. In contrast, you know, most professionals in Japan, I felt like when I first arrived to have really like a 24 mindset, they're almost on call. They, you know, reluctantly take annual leave. And so mm. I think I was faced with this real clash of approaches and mindsets Um, and really had to work out what was going to work for me because I didn't think neither of those mindsets were going to take me forward in the direction
0: that I wanted to go. Mm, So how did you know then it was the right decision to have come to Japan and take on the role with those things going on in your mind? Yeah, well, I think I knew I
1: really loved the work and so I sort of had to really find a new approach that was going to work for me. So over time, I suppose over in that that first year, I sort of tried different things. I, I sort of did give the twenty-four seven mindset a go for a time, but just felt that I got completely burnt out, and that wasn't going to work. And maybe this is some some advice, perhaps for younger lawyers or lawyers that have worked overseas and wanting to move to Japan. Perhaps a couple of things. So, firstly, from a practical perspective, rather than the concept, Catherine of like balance, the the yes. word sort of integration, I found much more helpful. And this was a real game changer for me when I came across this. So as you know, that, you know, M&A work is really dynamic. It's really busy. So for me, being able to sort of pop back for work after dinner with family to take a client call or, you know, during work from home, catching up on a training session while preparing dinner. So integrating these sort of parts mm-hmm. of my work into my life was just so much more helpful. Because, in fact, yeah, I often find as well that I get my best ideas um, when I'm out running and when I'm actually away from my desk. This sort of freed me to just look at my work in a totally new way. Even though it sounds really simple, um, it really was a game changer.
0: Wow, that's brilliant. Gosh, that's so brilliant. And, you know, you're doing your running, you're getting your ideas. And I think perhaps the firms realize this at the end of the day that. It is important for there, and I, I agree with you totally on not balance, it's integration and weaving that in. So when you're at work, some personal things will come up. When you're at home, some work things will come up. But that's the way it's going to be. I think it's very difficult to distinguish work and home. It doesn't really happen, does it?
1: Yeah, and I think so. that's sort of one thing, Catherine. And I think the other thing. Was sort of viewing my life more as like a puzzle rather than the sort of either/either sort of image of scales. But yeah, to look at it as like a puzzle and to see my paid work, you know, my profession, is just part of that puzzle. It's just sort of one of the things that brings me joy, you know, like leisure activities as well as non-paid work. So you know, housework and life admin, and now child rearing. You know, bringing up my son sort of makes up the remainder of those puzzle pieces and all of them contribute to my overall well-being
0: and happiness and make me yeah who I am. Yeah, I I love that. That's really great. And at Baker's, you stayed there for just over two years, I think. So, what would be your advice then too for associates who are uh, looking for how long they should be staying in a role? Is there any set sort of thinking around roles these days, or is it just depend on where you are and where you want to go next? What would you say? I think it depends on where you want to go next because I think for everyone
1: that looks really different I always sort of had um, a goal of two years in my mind because I feel like that's a solid time to be at any job and you sort of get to know the culture of the firm you get great experience within that time and then I sort of always set that as a time to then reassess like do I do I stay and keep doing what I'm doing here and move forward in this context or is it time to to make a change and shift somewhere else.
0: Right, and so you did in fact join Ellen and Overy where you are now and how do you recommend then as a good way for parting with one firm and joining another in the same city, is that hard to do or do you have some tips on how to do that rather more smoothly.
1: I don't know if I have tips to do it more smoothly. I suppose we're all sort of one family in a sense. Like I feel like, you know, right. at some point I'll be back across negotiating um, at the table with sort of Baker McKenzie lawyers. So I suppose I didn't, even though I was changing firms, I sort of still see myself as part of that same sort of legal family. And, but I think it is important too, to, to know what the next steps are for you. And for me, um, it was really to work alongside sort of Nick Wall and, and Tokutaka Ito, they're fantastic partners, great experience. But especially for Nick Wall, you know, he's a fellow Kiwi. He's a fantastic lawyer. um, He also speaks fluent Japanese. So for me, he's such a great role model and inspires me to keep honing, you know, my Japanese language skills because I can see the value that it brings to client relationships. And for me, that was the next step that I really needed, Catherine, was to have someone as a role model um, Mm -hmm. day to day that can really help me grow
0: as a lawyer, but also, you know, in, in that Japanese language as well wow well let's give Nick and Ito Sensei a shout out and we'll make sure that hopefully they're on LinkedIn we'll tag them and and let them know how much you are appreciating them and how much they mean to you and you succeeding in your practice right now and, and your life and and living as a lawyer that's really fantastic you've been managing this role remotely right since you joined that's right. Yes. No. I was onboarded at home.
1: Um, I got all the IT equipment sent to my house. I'm <laughs> um, in a call with IT to work out how to set everything up. So it's been a really um interesting but unusual very couple unusual. of years.
0: Yeah. yeah. So how do you do that successfully? They send everything to you. How do you keep your communication and camaraderie with with Nick and Sensei and all your other colleagues? Yeah. So we've had regular
1: check-ins and I think that's not just been for me, but for all associates in the firm um, to ensure that everyone's sort of tracking just because when you can't physically see people, you don't know, you know, um, it's much easier when you're in the office, you can sort of see if someone's having a bit of a hard day just to, to pop in and have a chat or go out for coffee. But you can't often sense that when people are at home, but the firm has been great at checking in. And I really hope that's something that can continue um, when we do go back into the office. I think that was a really positive thing.
0: Yeah, because I wanted to ask you about that. If you think the pandemic is going to affect the delivery of legal services, the way we work as lawyers, will it all revert back or do you think some things are going to change forever? I think there are some things that will change. I don't think we can ever go back to where we
1: were and I don't think we want to necessarily. I think there's things that we've learned from um, working from home during the pandemic that have been positive and that we can yeah bring forward when we go back into the office whether that's full time or whether that's just a few days a week I think that will depend probably on the firm culture I know for A&O they're keen for people to get back at least a few days a week because that just it does build relationship when you are together there is no doubt about that so I'm excited about that I'm excited about going back and actually meeting meeting some people that I haven't
0: met yet And that timing could well work nicely after you've completed your maternity leave as well if you are heading back into the office at that point yeah yes i'm hoping so right so what do you really enjoy about your role now and what parts of it uh really excite you and how are you able to do this m&a and deals distantly
1: sure so i think what i love about m&a is that it's complex it's really fast-paced transactional work you're able to work with a lot of different stakeholders across different cultures and languages. So I just find that really engaging. And I think the other thing would be, Catherine, is that m also has a real impact on business. And this impact is often quite visible. So whether the deal that you're working on might appear in the media or, you know, as an IPO, for example, or can often be physically visible. So for example, um, I worked on a deal where you know, we actually established a retail store in Japan. So there was a physical presence, evidence of my my hard work. And that's a real driver for me.
0: Oh, I love that. Was that during this last two years that you had that experience? Yes, that, that's oh, right. Yeah. So over my time in Japan, I was
1: able to see that. Actually, probably two businesses established. But yeah, the, the retail one was in the last couple of years.
0: And you hit on a good point there because sometimes as lawyers, we don't see that physical representation of our work. And it was funny when I was in New Zealand, I sent a package back to uh, Japan and opening the package, the packaging material is a company that I do work with and seeing their name in front of me was really, like you've just said, very inspiring, knowing that what I had done was reflected in the actual package that I was using to send a product over to uh, Japan. And so I get that. And I feel you really do feel it. Um, and you, you don't often have that feeling when you're a lawyer because things are on paper. So I'm hearing you on that one as well. That's that's cool. So I'm going to talk to you about maternity leave. And I, I know you will know that in season two of the podcast, I did speak to Shue Wang, who's the first woman partner in the firm, your firm, uh, in Tokyo to take maternity leave. And in season one, we also heard from your colleague, Hitomi Komachi, and she very much touched upon her maternity leave and the culture of diversity in AO. And this is not meant to be an AO advertisement or <laughs> um, that I've selected all of you. You've just been inspiring and outstanding lawyers, extraordinaire. that I wanted to talk to. You just happen to come from this firm at the moment. And I think listeners, you know, if they're interested to hear, they can pop over and listen to those episodes. But you've just started this journey, your own maternity leave journey. And I think that really speaks volumes about the diversity philosophy at ANO. So tell us about this experience so far for you, as a lawyer taking maternity leave in Japan in the middle of your career. I'm so interested to hear.
1: Sure. So I think personally, I decided that I wanted to have at least five years experience under my belt before thinking about starting a family. I think that was really important for me to feel like I was in a good position then to return to work if I chose to do that after my maternity leave. So I think I had just over five years experience before I decided that that was the right right timing to do that. And so, yeah, so far, um, it's been a great time away from my work. I haven't been I'm too bothered by work emails, although I'm just naturally still curious to see what's going on. So sort of checking in a few times a week just to sort of see how the deals that I was working on are progressing. But no, there's no pressure to, to do any work actively during this time. So I really appreciate that my colleagues are really respecting this, this time away with my family.
0: Mm, So you just sneak in a view just to see what's going on, but you're not expected to to do anything and how how much leave can you actually take and what sort of support do you get while you're away?
1: So the support has been fantastic. I think Joy may have touched on it, but um, we have sort of coaching available, which we get three sessions, I believe. I've already had one of them and it was really helpful before going on leave just sort of to characterize what this season could be for me. So it doesn't have to be sort of like a blank in your career at all. You could actually sort of re-characterize it um, to see it as sort of a a time of learning or a time of refreshing. um, So when you come back, you're sort of ready to go again. And I've got two more of those sessions, I think one during maternity leave and then one when I come back to the office. And those sessions are not only offered to associates, but also offered to the partners because it's all very well. So there's an associate getting all this great advice. and But if you don't have someone that you can implement it with and it's not really on the same page, it could be quite a challenge. Um, so that is just fantastic. And I don't know how many other firms offer that, but it is a massive benefit that I'm really grateful for.
0: I haven't heard about it. I, I think that philosophy is incredible. Is it originating in Japan or is it outside of Japan? It's globally within AO. How does that work? To be honest, I'm not entirely sure whether it's a benefit mm. that's
1: offered to all associates in AO's offices, uh, whether it's just Japan-focused. Um, my particular coach that I've been working with, she is... I think half Japanese. So uh, she speaks Japanese. She understands the culture here, which has also been fantastic. So it's not just sort of legal advice I'm receiving that's sort of in this vacuum, but it's actually really real and really helpful in the context of my clients that I serve.
0: And are the coaches from outside, they're specifically qualified for coaching to help you? Correct. Yes. They use a um, a coaching organization. I see. How incredible. I think that's amazing. I think we could go further into that. I I love that they're doing it before you go on maternity leave and that you're calling it a season, right? It is a season like one of the other seasons that we just experience as part of our process going through life. Uh, And I like that it's called a season. Then you have that one when you return and during as well. But also that it's not only for you, but it's also for the partners and other people around you to understand uh, the processes. I think that must just engender so much more understanding of this season that you have. It's really incredible. I, I also think it must be a real hiring plus to attract talent to the firm. Would that be right?
1: I assume so. I didn't actually know about this benefit when I went through the interview process. So it came mm-hmm. as a great um, surprise to me. And yeah, it was, it was it's really been wonderful to have that support there. Wow, that's fantastic.
0: So what's your future then dream for your role in the, the future of law as you are sitting here now looking forward? So
1: if I put it out there, let's, let's speak it out. I, mean, I would happen. have to be a managing partner at a firm one day. Um, that would be my, you know, my big goal. So let's just put that out there and leave that.
0: <laughs> That's what we need to do is put it out into the atmosphere, into the uh, environment, and it might it might well happen, I think. And managing partner in, is in your future. That's wonderful. Yeah. Are there any other tips you have then for the long-term success as a lawyer in Japan? You've talked about managing you know having to have five five years before having a family that sounds like a very strategic way to have your law career do that before commencing a family any other kinds of tips for long-term success as a lawyer in a law firm in japan touching
1: back on what i was speaking to before about sort of um, the mindset of an m a lawyer i think another thing that's really helped me is taking at least sort of one day out a week, or if that's not possible due to uh, the deals I'm working on, sort of time out when the deal closes, just to refresh. Because I think it's so important not to burn out as if you're in that stage, you're sort of, you're no use to clients or your firm as you're at risk of making mistakes and bad decisions uh, when you're operating on empty. It's really important to know what fills your tank and to make time for those things um, so that you're operating at your best. Hmm. And I think as a woman, I think we're really relational. And in my experience here, we often put our hands up to do um, what I would call maybe office housework over and above focusing on our billables. You know, as a lawyer, you know, doing cross-border M&A, we're already so busy and so stretched. Um, and then we have, you know, our family commitments over top of that. It's really important that One, if you're going to engage in this type of work, you know, booking restaurants or, you know, planning social gatherings or I don't know what else, you know, making everyone sure signs, you know, the the birthday card for the team or volunteering on internal committees. All these sorts of things are so positive, but they just take a lot of time. They often go unrecognized. So making sure that if you engage in these sorts of activities, they are recognized when you have your performance reviews that you have discussions and can you know explain to the people that you work with the value you're bringing by engaging in these kind of activities and I think also too it would be great if men could start to see perhaps the value in these types of tasks too and could also engage in these because I think it is really important to build that office culture and build a um, environment where people want to come to work and want to work together.
0: Mm, yeah. Great points like not to not not do it right so not Uh, saying that you shouldn't do these activities, but to also make sure that they are recognized, uh, right? And have everybody doing it, not just a certain sector of the uh, firm doing it. I think those are really great points. Fantastic. Well, I'm going to move on to just talk a little bit about your routine. Things that you are now doing, I guess, compared to when you were in the office or when you were working uh, and not on maternity leave, things are different. But what about starting your day, when you're usually off maternity leave, and how that compares to now, what you're doing to start off your workday or your uh, season that you're having right now? Before um, having my child, I would wake up, I'd have a
1: coffee, check my work emails to make sure that there was nothing urgent that I need to respond to before doing anything else. Then I would make my husband's bento box. <laughs>
0: um, Lunch, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It's something I started doing in New Zealand, and I just have kept doing. Well done. And then it's really important for me to go for a run or a walk in the morning before the day gets busy. What else do I do? Come home, have breakfast, put the washing on, and then um, <laughs> get into work. Uh, so it that's sort of my been. routine. So I assume now with my child in the mix, I suppose I'll have to add in sort of organizing him and feeding him um, into that. Yeah, of course. And how about winding down at the end of the day? So it depends on the day. Often, you know, during my work will do lots of meetings at night just due to the time zone differences. Mm -hmm. So so there's a couple of patterns. I'd either sort of have a glass of wine to wind down while cooking and then debrief the day with my husband um, and perhaps read before bed to calm down. Um, Mm -hmm. Or if I have meetings at night, my husband might already be asleep. So I might just have a cup of tea and some chocolate (laughs) and then do some stretches or take a bath uh, to wind down. But either way, it's really important for me to quiet my mind at the end of the day to make sure I have a good sleep.
0: Right, I get that. And by this time, if we were in person, we would have had one or two uh, craft gins, I think. So tell me then traits that you're really proud of um, and what success means to you. This is the deep and meaningful part of the podcast,
1: Livia. <laughs> uh, I think the trait that I'm most proud of is my perseverance. I never give up, ever, ever. <laughs> And I think this mm. has served me really well in my role as an M&A lawyer, as we often have to work long and unfriendly hours. You know, we might have tough negotiating partners and there's always complex legal challenges that require a real creative solutions to get the deal over the line. So I think this, this attitude and this grit that I have
0: of never giving up, yeah, is something I'm really proud of. And that's part of what success is for you then, or that has helped you to be successful in the way that you've been able to pick yourself up and carry on. Yeah, I think that has attributed to my success, but I think what success means
1: to me is perhaps slightly different. I think success means to me probably uh, progressing in life. So that means growing in my character as well as achieving my goals. So that's sort of twofold for me. Mm. And I think... Uh, a sort of phrase that characterizes me quite well is um, for me every day starts at zero so for me it's really important to achieve something throughout the day even if that's a really small thing so at the moment on maternity leave that looks quite different of course to what it might look like um, when I'm being a busy M&A lawyer but that sense of achievement um, really does drive me and I would probably say is my why you know they have that concept of your why um, yeah achievement would be mine
0: Mm. So I was going to ask you if you had a word of the year or theme or mantra that guides you, but it sounds like that is it achievement.
1: Yes. So I think overall it's achievement, but mm. I've actually been quite inspired by your sort of theme of the year um, or word of the year concept. And I've done a lot of thinking about that actually um, mm. from listening to some of the other people that you've had on your podcast, Catherine. And I think for me this year, I've decided I'm going to have a word and my word's going to be connection. Oh yeah, and so due to the pandemic, obviously we've been remotely working a lot. But I'm excited about you know connecting with clients face to face again, and also building new connections both in the professional sphere by mm. engaging in sort of networking events again, and um, but also in the personal sphere, hopefully making some new mama tomo, um, some years, yeah, friends yeah. Um, with children too.
0: Sure and I mean you must know that I love connection as well and so if there's anything you and I can do together to start something almost like your little conference that you did some innovative idea to help people lawyers connect let's do that I'd love to try and think about that with you it'd be fun. That sounds fantastic. Well what about then you've talked about great things that drive you what about the wisest thing that someone has ever said to you that has really encouraged you all the way through? Maybe it's from your family, from Nick, from your husband, from somebody through your life, the wisest thing that you've ever ever had said to you and who said it and and what was it? In a work context,
1: uh, one of the best pieces of advice I've received was from my supervising partner at Chapman trip in my first year. And it was given in the context of being asked to assist a client with a database entry task. Mm. Um, so to be honest Catherine I couldn't really see why the client needed a lawyer's assistance for this task so I politely inquired why we need to do this and I suppose I hoped the answer would help me see a link to my goals and motivate me to do the task but instead the response was well sometimes we've just got to do the things we don't want to do (laughs) right Um, which took me back a little bit I think at the time but in hindsight that was just what I needed to hear And later reflecting on the comment, I could see the purpose of the task was to build the client relationship. And while it didn't necessarily link to my personal growth as a lawyer, it was just as important as if the client had asked us to draft a document because it's what they needed and our role as lawyers is to serve the client. So I think that advice really helped me and and it continues to pop into my mind sometimes
0: and helps me to see the bigger picture. Wow, super. How about the other reverse side of that advice that someone's given you that, sounded like it was good for you at the time, but hasn't really served you well.
1: To be honest, I can't
0: really recall any bad mm. advice,
1: as I assume I probably just shrugged it off and thought, oh, well, I'm not going to take that on board. Right. So I don't think anything comes to mind in particular.
0: Um, Perhaps with your perseverance mindset, that's been um, very helpful to sort of dispel any of those kinds of myths that have come up as well, though. Yeah, um, I, I think so. Wow. Gosh, as we step into this year then, Olivia, what are you thinking about for the rest of this year and any other tips that you would like to share or inspiration for other lawyers who are planning out this year? It's February. We know it's already February when this airs. It's likely to be in a a little bit later, but what about that for other people and what you're thinking about for personal and career development activities this year? For this year,
1: I've got sort of set a challenge for myself to see um, how I can work effectively sort of alongside the AI that we've got at our firm. I know we've got so many tools. I'm always getting emails about, you know, um, tools for project management, tools to review contracts to assist us with the review task. So I think I really want to dig into those resources at our firm and start to use them more so that I can be more effective in my job for, for our clients.
0: Fantastic. That sounds like a great thing. It's great that you've got the tools, but you've got to learn how to use them, right? That's right. Yeah. And I
1: think it's easy. We sort of get stuck in our ways and doing the things we've always done is often easier. And it can seem sort of burdensome to take time out to learn how to use these new tools. But I do know that if we take the time out, it'll be well worth the weight in gold
0: once we know how to use them. Mm, Wow, that's amazing. And so anything today, Olivia, that we didn't cover that you wanted to mention or anything you did Talk about, but you want to re emphasize? A couple of things. Also, on the advice side for
1: younger lawyers, I think there are two things. The first is sort of three sort of key practices that I think are really helpful to establish when you start out um, as a lawyer. The first one, so tackle the hardest tasks first, so mm-hmm. you don't get stuck endlessly replying to emails. And um, also to block out time in your calendar for both meetings and tasks to make sure that you don't run out of time to get the actual client work done. Uh, And it also helps with time recording, and to set aside time to plan and create a mental map of what you're going to do. And I think that saves time at the um, end of the day, and it also saves clients money because you're not wasting time redoing work. And you're also able to turn your mind to you know potential roadblocks at the beginning of the task, so that you're prepared um, for the unexpected, and you can pivot more quickly. So those three things. Tackle the hardest tasks first, block out time in your calendar for meetings and tasks and set aside time to plan, I think will set you up really well. So I think that's sort of on the practical side, Catherine, from a more conceptual side, perhaps something that I wish that I had known when I started out in my career was that relationships are more important than being right. And I think naturally as lawyers, we tend to think we're right and we want to persuade the other party of this and not really back down until we've won the point per se. But Mm. I've learned that relationships, even with the counterparty on the deal, are more important to preserve than our pride. And it's so important never to lose a relationship over a difference of opinion, whether that's with external or external clients um, as relationships are key. And I think Yeah, if you keep that, you can't go wrong um, if you keep that in the forefront of your mind.
0: Super, super advice. I, I love those. You've captured it very, very well. Well done, you. Well... Olivia, we're going to head into the very final part of the podcast episode today, and that's the super six. I call it a quick fire round of six questions that I ask everyone uh, to wind up the interview. Uh, And the first one, you've probably heard me ask many times before if I had a million yen in cash and I could give it to you. uh, Where in Japan would you spend it? Your favorite store or destination or both? Mm. So
1: we've been looking to buy a house. Uh, in the mm. last year or so so part of it would be uh, to use for a house deposit nice yeah, and then part of it I would like to give to World Vision which is an NGO that both me and my husband um, support
0: fantastic good only half and half that would be or well, maybe a little bit more for the house deposit, because it would be nice to get that project off the ground. Fantastic. Um, yeah, I hope that comes yeah. through. Um, sorry I can't give you that, but I'm lovely it's lovely to hear what people think about when they have the idea of having that cash on hand. Our second question is around sharing perhaps a podcast or a book that you've listened to or read, or are a reading or listening to at the moment that you'd recommend. For books, I've just read a book called To Be Fair
1: by Rosemary Riddell. I've so, just read that as well. Are you re- really?
0: Yeah. Oh, um, it's so a it's great fantastic book, book, isn't it? Yeah,
1: it's wonderful. Um, it's very humorous. I had so many laughs. It's a great book to to wind down um before bed. And she has recounts various, you know, insider stories of her experience as a judge.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she was a judge in, in New Zealand. She's retired, but she's written this book. Never thought she'd write a book, but I loved it. I read it while I was in New Zealand and it was absolutely fantastic. Um, And I've brought a copy back with me. So anyone who would like to borrow it, I have a copy um, available for you to have a look at that too. I'm so glad that we've both read that so recently. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So that's books. And then what's the other one? Podcast. Yes. Podcast. Yeah. So I listen to um, a podcast regularly called NPR Hidden Brain by Shankar Vedantam. He's the host. And the podcast uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behavior. Shape our choices and direct our relationships, mm-hmm. and it's super interesting. The one I listened to recently, Catherine, was all about um, how others perceive you, and how often we can be a lot more worried about how others are perceiving us than we really need to be. So, yeah, lots of insights um, into into human behaviour, and, and yeah, so really interesting. I think as lawyers, because obviously working with people in our
0: jobs. So I think I found it really, really interesting. Mm, I have lots of podcasts I'm subscribed to, but I think one of them is that, but I may not have listened to it for a little while. So I'm I'm going to promise you today, I'll listen to that and listen to that episode you've just recommended. Thank you for that. My third question then is your favorite saying, but you've already told us that every day starts at zero. Is there something else that you think about like a kotowaza, a Japanese saying? Or other kind of saying that you have on top of every day starts at zero? Sure. So I think another one in Japanese would probably Ichigo Ichie. Mm. Really love. Um, what does that mean? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so it, I mean, the concept is, I won't translate it directly, um, but it's that every moment is really unique and special and that you should treasure every, every moment as such.
0: Very much so. Is there a famous person or celebrity you would love to meet or have already met?
1: I've never been a big fan of celebrities. Even growing up, I wasn't one of those kids that had lots of posters on their wall. That doesn't mm. really appeal to me as I think I assumed that I'd never be able to meet them, Catherine. So I sort of <laughs> just gave up on the idea. But um, I do have a favorite um, Japanese band called Monkey Magic. They're a bunch of Canadian singers with then Japanese musicians. And they actually came to New Zealand and through a muso connection of mine, because um, I play keys, and so through that connection, she's uh, half Japanese and she was doing a show with them while they were in New Zealand to record their new album. And so I heard about it and went along to this little bar and um, I actually got to meet them. Oh. I think I was their only like Kiwi fan <laughs> and there's a few <laughs> other Japanese people that went along, um, oh. but it was fantastic. And I got to have drinks with them after the gig. And yeah, it was, it was wonderful because you wouldn't get that experience here in Japan because they're really famous.
0: Mm, so. You play keyboard. I do yes yeah oh and who was the half Japanese person who you mentioned there her name's Kat McDowell oh yes yeah I thought it might be her I've heard of yeah. her before I haven't seen her for a little while in Japan but yes that's who who I was thinking of yeah okay great well there you go you never know do you no you <laughs> never know well your bedside cabinet that's the next question there's two more uh what's on your bedside cabinet at home that inspires you and why is that So I'm not sure if there's anything that particularly
1: inspires me, Um, but I do have a really cool lamp. It's called Lumio and it's Mm. a book, the shape of a book and the, it opens up. And so the pages inside, obviously they don't have writing on them, but it all like illuminates. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's very cool. And it's magnetic too. So you can sort of stick it to things um, and it's transportable. It's charged by like a USB cable. So I think that's the coolest thing I've bought in a while and Yeah, so maybe it does inspire me.
0: Oh, I think I've Um, seen those. Yeah, good one. (laughs) Yeah, and then there's my phone charger, and I think the book that's on the go at the time. Right, fantastic. And then the last question there is, what is something about you that a lot of people don't know? And I didn't know you played keyboards, so that's one thing I've learned from you today, at least in these final questions. Yeah, so
1: maybe a couple of things. I think, depending on who you talk to, um, some people might not know that I'm an avid snowboarder, I love it. It's one of the things that I do in winter to recharge. I love the rush of adrenaline when you're carving down the mountain or, you know, in the snow park. So it's one thing. Um, But for people that did know that about me, um, one thing that you might not know is that when I was in university, I really loved like vintage fashion and I always wanted to search for something unique and didn't want to... um wear anything that anyone else was wearing that of course has had to change when I became a lawyer I had to start investing in a bit more formal attire so I don't think I have anything
0: from an op shop or a vintage clothing shop in my wardrobe Mm. at the moment wow I'm sure you often frequent Shimokitazawa though for having a little look around there
1: I do. I still love it, I think, for inspiration. But I mean, in Japan, we're so spoiled for choice with our clothing stores. And I think you can get things that are really unique, that are still of really good quality and that are work appropriate.
0: <laughs> Very good. Well, that's been super exciting. I didn't know any of that about you. Um, and it's really interesting to hear. Thank you so much, Olivia. We have actually come to the end. Um, you've really shared such an, an amazing journey, your inspirational stories of your career, your profession. You are balancing your life goals. No, you are integrating your life goals with your career. And you've really shown us that you can do anything if you set your mind to it uh, across geographies and other perceived limitations with having perseverance and continuing along your path and and pushing out anything that's negative and i really think you've shown that through not just saying it but i can hear it in your voice that you've been doing that so i really want to thank you for taking the time for sharing your wonderful story your insights and those nuggets of advice it's been really fabulous to be able to connect with you again in this way thank you so much thank you for having me
1: Catherine. it's been wonderful to spend time speaking with you and i hope that what i've said has inspired people or
0: has been thought-provoking I'm sure it has been. How can people connect with you if they would like to do that? Would they do that on LinkedIn? Yes, LinkedIn would be the best way to do that. That's fantastic. We'll put your LinkedIn details in the show notes so anyone who's interested can connect with you there. Well, thank you so much again for being my second guest in season three of Lawyer On Air. I really want to thank you. Uh, It's been so important to um, have this time with you and I really wish you the very, very best for an enjoyable maternity leave and for that study of those IP, uh, AI tools that you've got up up your sleeve coming up. So for my listeners, uh, please do like this episode. Subscribe to Lawyer On Air and do just drop us a short review if you can, because that does help Lawyer On Air to be seen by more people and heard by more people. I've really enjoyed hearing all of the feedback that we've received by voicemail on the website as well. So you can pop over there and leave an actual voicemail for me as well. So do go ahead and share this episode of another of my Legal Eagles uh, with someone you think will really enjoy listening to it and be inspired to live a wonderful lawyer extraordinaire life. That's all for me now. See you on the next episode. Cheers. pie, and bye for now. Thank you so much for listening today to this episode of Lawyer On Air. I really hope that you were inspired by the story you heard and that you discovered something new about women in the law. It's my passion to share my stories of amazing legal ladies, so please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And if you can think of even just one person to share this episode with, that would make my day. I would love to connect with you, so jump on over to LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Insta, where you can find me. The links are in the show notes below. Well, that's all from me today, and I look forward to seeing you right here on the next episode of Lawyer on Air. Cheers, kampai, and bye for now.